Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This morning, we're beginning, uh, we're beginning a new book, the book of Numbers by Midbar. And earlier this week in prayer, I felt like the Lord was leading me to Matthew 24. And so I began reading in Matthew 24, and then later on that day, I started to read the portion. I found out that that was this week's gospel reading. So it's like, okay, I have a feeling that uh, Matthew 24 should be incorporated into the message. And I think overall, they, this may end up being, it's probably going to be a two-week uh, message because there's a lot of information and it may just be too much to try to bring into one, uh, one message. But the overarching theme is to prepare for his coming. Okay. Um, let's turn to Matthew 24, verses 29 through 36. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, when I was reading through Matthew 24 and just thinking on the return of Yeshua, and how we're entering into the book of Numbers, which is Bamidbar, which means the wilderness. I was thinking on the connection there between his return and the wilderness. Because where we are right now is we're in a form of exile, awaiting the return of our king. Or is it he's in exile awaiting his return to his, to his kingdom? But there's a there's a wilderness period where we we are awaiting the fullness of the promise and the fullness of the kingdom here on the earth and the song we were singing about our hope and that we're not alone and that every desert has an end right that's every desert has an end every exile has an end because god is going to bring about the end of that desert and the end of that exile and bringing us into new seasons, whether it's a new season of life that we're walking in right now, um, or if it's the new season of the messianic era being initiated. I prefer the messianic era coming sooner than a new season of my life, but I'll take either as the Lord gives, right? Um, but even as we're reading here in, in Matthew 24, in verse 31, the scripture says, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. 
and what this is saying is that at the return of Yeshua, there will be an exile that is coming to an end. Because he has to gather the elect from the four corners. They've been scattered abroad. They need to be brought back in. And that's what will happen at his coming. So there is an exile. It will end. But one of the questions that arises is, as we walk through this wilderness, as we wade through the exile and await the return of our king, what is it that we do? And the easy answer there is that we prepare for his return. We prepare for his return. And with this week's portion, Numbers opens up with a census of the children of Israel and begins to designate where the tribes are camping. And the primary focus is the centrality of God's presence among the people. So let's look at Numbers 1, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. So the people are being uh, numbered in order to uh, establish the genealogies of the families and then to begin placing them around the tabernacle. So when we read in Numbers 1, starting in verse 50, we see a description of how the camp is set up. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there, be me, there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their fathers' houses, and they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So the way that the tabernacle was set up, the tabernacle opens toward the east, and when the tabernacle was set up, there were camps placed to the east, to the south, to the west, and to the north. And it was that case with the 12 tribes, and it was also with the families of the Levites. So you had Moses and Aaron. They were positioned on the east side at the entrance of the tabernacle. And then you had the three families of the Levites camped around the south, north, and west side. And then outside of that at a distance, you had the 12 tribes spread around it. So the Levites formed a barrier or like really it was a protective barrier between the people and the tabernacle and God's presence. 
But within all this, as, as we read there in that, in that translation, it said that the people camped facing the tabernacle. Uh, other translations say they, they camped round about the tabernacle. But no matter how we look at it, whether they're just camped round about or whether they're facing, the, the thing that is of primary importance here is that the tabernacle was the center of their life, of how they positioned themselves to say, what matters most in this world, in this wilderness, in my life? It's that God is at the center. His very presence in his sanctuary is there. Not just physically, but also needing to be a spiritual reality within our lives. Even in transit, when they would travel, the tabernacle was at the center. So the scriptures give instructions of, of how they are to move, and the camps to the east head out first, and then the south follow, and then the tabernacle comes, then the camps to the west, and then the camps to the north, such that whether they're camped or whether they're traveling, God is the center of everything in their being. And that's in Numbers 2.17. Um, the scripture says, Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. Just as they camp, so they shall set out, every man in his place by their standards. Now there's some opinions that say, as they were camped, they walked. And there's others that say they get, went in a line um, because you can actually read that from various passages. But regardless of, of how it was that they moved, God remained the center of their entire existence. Now, as we open up numbers, right? So like the past few weeks, we've just been in the book of Leviticus, focused on the tabernacle itself, the offerings, drawing near to God, the roles and responsibilities of the the priests and Levites, and also of the kingdom of priests and, and holiness unto God. And now God is taking a census of the people, and he is beginning to give instructions of how the people will move on from where they are. They arrived at Sinai 50 days after, well, roughly 50 days, not a little bit before 50 days after the Passover. And now they've been camped around Sinai for 11 months and they're getting ready to move forward and go on to the promised land. When they camped around Sinai, that's when, that's when God came down on the mountain and he revealed himself and he spoke the Ten Commandments. His presence was on the mountain and they were camped around it. But God knew that if he was going to send the people on to leave the mountain and go to the promised land, that he would need, well, that the people would need him to go with them. And so the tabernacle became the place of his dwelling as opposed to the mountain. And then when the tabernacle would be taken down and moved, God's presence would be going along with the children of Israel wherever he would lead them to. Now, if you recall, what the scripture says is that there was a cloud that would rest on the tabernacle. And when it would lift, the children of Israel would follow. And when it would rest, the children, children of Israel would camp. Now, where we are starting here in Numbers, none of that moving and camping has happened. It's just been God's cloud there resting on the tabernacle. But he's getting the people ready to move them on. 
And within this aspect of the need for the children of Israel to be watchful for what is God's glory cloud doing, what is his presence doing, is very similar to what we do today when we watch where the Spirit of the Lord is moving, where we clear our airwaves and make time to hear from God and what it is that he's doing, what he's speaking to us. Ultimately, so that we can follow where he leads, whether it's big moves or small moves or just the day-to-day, what do you have for me, Lord? What do you have for me, Lord? Now, as you know, we've been counting the Omer, and we're now less than a week from Shavuot. Shavuot begins Thursday night after sunset, and we'll be celebrating with a Torah study Thursday night, and then also with our celebrations next Friday out at Lake Houston Wilderness Park. But within the celebration of Shavuot, there's a couple of things that we celebrate. We celebrate the giving of the Torah at Sinai, and we celebrate the giving of the Spirit in the day of Pentecost with the, with the apostles after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. Now, when we think about Shavuot, those are really two primary aspects that we celebrate. We think about the covenant increase that God brings in this time, where in the wilderness, God brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and brought them into covenant with him. He took a people who had been enslaved, set them free, and then brought them to himself to experience what true freedom was under a God and ruler who loved them. But there's another part that I think that is concealed just below the surface of Shavuot that we're going to explore through the rest of this message and and likely into next week. And it's it's the aspect of God also giving his people a place to dwell. Now at Shavuot, this is going to be a little bit, we're going to have to flesh this out. But here at Sinai, we, it's very clear to say, okay, well, God took a people. He delivered them. He brought them to himself and entered into covenant relationship with them through the giving of the Torah. And, but then where does the land come into play? And there's this, I think in Sinai, there's just a hint of the land. But then through more scriptures and other things that are happening, we'll begin to see that developed a little further. And the hint of the land is God's presence coming down on the mountain and the mountain becoming holy where his presence dwelled in that moment. So let's look at Exodus 19, 10 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So, God's command is, my presence is going to come on the mountain, but you need to make it so that no one is touching the mountain, the land where my presence is, lest they die. But then after this extended trumpet blast, 
then they shall be able to come up to the mountain. When we look, when we look into this, okay, we've talked about Mount Sinai having been a place of God's presence with the people around it, but the people are going to move on. God's presence needs to go with them. But what's the whole reason that the people need to move on from Mount Sinai? They need to move on from Mount Sinai because God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would inherit the land of Canaan, not the land around Sinai. And so they needed to move forward. And the purpose of moving forward was so that God could complete the promise that he had made of both uh, making, creating a people that were fully his and giving them an inheritance of land. The three elements of this being a people, God's presence among the people, and the people being in a land where God's presence dwells. Now, last year, we introduced a topic, or we we introduced um, a chiasm that I think plays a part into what we're looking at today. And often what we'll talk about when it comes to the redemption is we'll, we'll talk about the four expressions of redemption from Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Because that's a primary part of Passover. That's from where the four cups of Passover come from. But then there's an additional promise that comes after those four expressions of redemption that become critical to saying what is the full picture of redemption. And I'm going to go in reverse order here. But before I go and read these, these passages, a chiastic structure is one in which you have, it's not really, a, it's, it's, not a, it's not parallel passages. Instead, what it is, it's there's a passage where there are bookends that have the same concept or the same theme. And if you start reading from the very first time, of the appearance down to the last, then you have a progression that escalates um, escalates in one direction until it reaches a central point, and then it begins to reverse out, such that the first concept and the last concept are the same, the second concept and the second to last concept are the same, and so forth all the way down until you get to the center piece. And the center piece is really the one that is the focus of what the passage is about. All of the components building up to and giving understanding to each other, but having a central focus. And within this four expressions of redemption carried in Exodus 6, 6 through 7, and I'm going to extend that to 8 for the purposes of this chiasm, we have a parallel between that and what we saw in last week's portion beginning in Leviticus 26. And so Exodus 6, 6 through 7, I'm going to, actually, you know what I'm going to do? We're going to leave the chiasm up, and I'm going to read from from this so that I can read, and you can follow along looking at the chiasm here. All right, Exodus 6, starting in, in verse 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I shall take you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will rescue you from their service or from their bondage. I shall take you out from under the burdens of Egypt. 
and I shall rescue you from their service. I shall redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I shall take you to me for a people, and I shall be a God to you. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who takes you out from the burdens of Egypt. Okay, that covers the four expressions of redemption. But then there's this verse 8 that says, I shall bring you to the land about which I raised my hand to give it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I shall give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. All right, so, so that's the first half of the chiasm. Now on the second half, in Leviticus 26, starting in verse 11, he says, I will place my sanctuary among you and my spirit will not reject you. Okay, so I'm placing the land that God's giving as an inheritance and the sanctuary together here in the center. And then we begin to walk backwards through the chiasm. He says, I will walk among you and I will be a God to you and you will be a people to me. If you recall back in Exodus, he said, you will be a people and I will be your God. So now that's being reversed. And he says, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt from being their slaves and I broke the staves of your yoke and I led you upright. Okay, if you follow each of those components, I brought you out from being a slave and I broke the staves of your yoke. Those are the opposite. It's in the opposite order from what we saw in Exodus 6. And so what we have here is the center component. Really, if we, if we take the center component and say it's really the, well, the yellow is God's presence dwelling in his sanctuary, dwelling in his land. But then the other parts that form the centerpiece around that is God's people and him being a God unto them. So the center component of this is God's presence among his people. God's presence among his people. So they were set free from Egypt, from tyrannical rulers for the purpose of being God's people with his presence in their midst so that God could be the center of their lives and he could be the one who is pouring out blessings and peace upon them and fulfilling his promises that he said that he would give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, at this point you might be asking, okay, where are you going? I still don't see it coming together about how we're tying this to Shavuot. But the Leviticus 26 passage here, 11 through 13, comes in the context of God pouring out blessings on his people and fulfilling his promises to them within the context of the people walking in God's Shemitah and his Yovel. Okay, so in Leviticus 25, we, we got to read about the Shemitah year. For six years, the children of Israel will plant and harvest their land, and in the seventh year, they do not harvest. Okay, and then... God says that you will count, actually, you know what, let's go ahead and, well, we'll read it in a minute. But then God says that you will count seven cycles of these Shemitah years. And once those are complete, once those 49 years are complete, then in the 50th year, you shall proclaim a jubilee for all the land. You'll proclaim a jubilee for all the land. And so it was in Leviticus 26, um, 2, he says, you shall keep my Sabbaths 
and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now, when he's talking about you shall keep my Sabbaths, that's right on the heels of him having given the instructions of keeping the Sabbaths of the land, both in the Shemitah and in the Yovel, the Jubilee. So now he's saying, when you walk in these commands, I'm going to pour out blessings upon you, and I'll give you rain in its season, and I'm going to bring you to the place that I promised, and I will complete the restoration of the people, taking them out of slavery, bringing them to myself, and giving them a land. All right, so with Yovel, you have seven cycles of seven culminating with a 50th year celebration. And with where we are walking in the scriptures right now and in God's appointed times, we know that we're counting the Omer leading up to Shavuot. And during this, we're counting seven cycles of weeks leading up to the 50th day in which we're going to celebrate God's giving of the Torah and God's giving of the Spirit. So there's this connection between Yovel, the Jubilee year, and Shavuot. But it goes deeper than just the counting of the days. That's one element that begins to get our attention and say, hey, there's a connection between this Jubilee year and with Shavuot. So we want to go and explore that a little bit more to understand the different components. All right, so I described a little, let's, I, I described the counting of the 50s, but let's read the scriptures that are associated with this. In Leviticus 23, 15 through 16, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. And then in Leviticus, that's, so that's the Omer counting leading up to Shavuot. In Leviticus 25, 8 through 10, we see the uh, details regarding the Jubilee year. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. All right, so that last passage where each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that's saying that the land is restored, the ancestral heritage of the children of Israel are restored to them if they had lost it at any point during the 49 years leading up to this. If they had become impoverished and had to sell their land, they're getting it back. And then likewise, each is getting returned to their clan. If a person had become so impoverished that they had to sell themselves as a slave, in the year of Jubilee, they were set free and they were returned to their family. So the year of Jubilee was a complete restoration. It was a restoration from slavery, and it was a restoration from being exiled from your land. So it's both the people and their land. So the Shemitah... If we were to look at these two things, Shavuot and Yovel, the Shemitah, which is that seventh year of rest, it is, the, the Shemitah is to seven years what Shabbat is to seven days. Right? You have six days of sowing, of working, and then on the seventh day you rest. 
the land, there are six years of working and there's one year of rest. And now the Jubilee is seven weeks of years, just as Shavuot is seven weeks of days. So the Yovel is to 50 years, what Shavuot is to 50 days. There's our, our parallel. And as we talked about here, within the Yovel, we have the return of, of people. They're delivered from slavery and they're also given land. And it's this release, it's this, uh, it's freedom, it's release that is proclaimed throughout the land and to its inhabitants. So with this restoration, that we, we have a, a blast of the shofar on the Day of Atonement to announce the arrival of the Jubilee year. Now, when I was talking about Jubilee, the Hebrew word is yovel. Yovel is not a common word that is used in the scriptures. In fact, there's within the, within the first five books of the Bible, within the Chumash, you have it mentioned in the book of Exodus. On one occasion, you have it mentioned in Leviticus during this time, during this phrase that we're looking at. And there's one more time that it's mentioned in the book of Numbers when it's just speaking about the Jubilee year. But the primary focus here is in Exodus and it's in Leviticus talking about the release and the freedom, proclaiming freedom to the people. Now, when it was mentioned in the book of Exodus is in the very passage that we read earlier from Exodus 19, verses 10 through 13, when God is telling Moses to get the people ready because his presence is going to come down on the mountain and he is going to speak the Ten Commandments and he's going to bring the people into covenant with him. He's creating a people to be their God. He says to prepare the people for his coming and set apart boundaries on the mountain so that no one will come and touch the mountain. But then when he says, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So that the extended shofar blast, then you can come up to the mountain. That shofar, so the word shofar is the common word used for the trumpet, for the ram's horn that's blown. But in this passage, the word that God chose to use is yovel. He says, when the yovel sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now, in that passage of Exodus 19, there's two more times that a shofar is mentioned, right? When God comes down on the mountain and there's the, the cloud and the wind and a loud shofar blast, it says it's a shofar blast. It's always called a shofar, except at this scripture, it's called a yovel. So there's something about the yovel that's being proclaimed for the people at this time, but they're not yet going into their land. Right? So God's got the people. He's brought them to him. And then there's some hinting of land, but there's not the giving of the land yet. That's because God was going to do it in two parts. He was bringing the people to himself at Sinai to be a God unto them. But then he was going to sound the Yovel again when he brought the people into the land to proclaim freedom and to say that he's bringing the whole aspect together, the two to complete each other. I'll, I'll go ahead and share this part before we go on to the second part of the Yovel being sounded. According to tradition, the shofar at Sinai, the Yovel that was sounded at Sinai 
was the left horn of the ram offered by, by Abraham at the sacrifice area when, when Isaac was bound at the Akeda. Okay, remember when Abraham had bound Isaac and he was ready to uh, give him up as an offering and God stopped him and caused a ram to be caught in the thicket. That ram was offered in Isaac's place. And so the sages say that that left horn of that ram is what was blown at Sinai. Okay, so God's sounding from that offering of Isaac, but of, the, of this ram, to announce his coming down onto the mountain and creating a people for himself. But then they say also that the right horn, the right horn is the shofar that will be sounded at the coming of the Messiah. Okay? It's a beautiful picture, right? Because we know that Yeshua is going to descend with a shout and coming with the trumpet of God as he's coming on the clouds of glory. And so that, that's a cool picture. We're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit more next week. But this expectation of the, of the shofar coming at the Messiah is a really cool picture when we, when we view it in the context of Shavuot and the Jubilee year. Okay. I shall go ahead and read this passage quickly. It's in First Thessalonians. Actually, I'll I tell you what. Matthew 24, 31. I think that may actually be in here. The scripture says, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Right? Here's the end of the exile at the coming of Yeshua. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, 16a. I say 16a. 16, the entire thing's written here, so I'll read it all. For the, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an arch archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Right? So here he is coming on the clouds of heaven with the sound of the shofar, with a, with a loud shout to come and bring the children of Israel out of captivity, to bring them back to their land, to end the exile. All right, so, so what we have when we're looking at our progression of what's happening at Sinai and the concept of the Jubilee, the Yovel was sounded at Sinai after the revelation of God on the mountain. And then the Yovel is sounded at the year of Jubilee at the beginning of the 50th year. So it's at the beginning of the Jubilee the Yovel is sounded. There's another place where the Yovel is brought up in the scriptures. And that's in the book of Joshua. And, it's, and it occurs at the time that Joshua and the children of Israel are coming into Jericho. Now, where was it? what is the significance of Jericho? Well, that's the first city that God conquered in the conquest of the land, right? So if we were to look at Joshua 6, Joshua 6, verses 2 through 4. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Interestingly enough, he says, Jericho is a large city. It is heavily fortified with a massive wall. 
And they're standing outside of Jericho and God says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's like, if you're standing there looking at Jericho, you're not very much seeing that Jericho has been given into your hand. But God is saying, I have given it into your hand. And let me tell you how I'm going to give it into your hand. He says, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now, this, when he says that they shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn, the scripture says that those are shofarot yovalim. They are trumpets of jubilee. Okay? So, and what does he do? He says, march around it for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times, and the seven priests are going to sound their seven yovalim. And that is how God is delivering the land, despite all odds, to the children of Israel. Well, I don't know if you see it or not, but you probably do. You have six days followed by a special seventh day, and the seventh day, you have seven priests, seven shofars, seven circles, and you have a great deliverance. And so when we look in Joshua 6, as we keep reading on, I don't want to read all of this. Actually, I'll tell you what, we will. They blow the trumpets, and then in verse 5 here, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And they will take up, they will take the city. And that's what we see happen when we continue on here. Well, we aren't going to read more on this right now, but the idea here, God gave the command that on the seventh day they would do it. They, on that seventh day, they marched around seven times. They all shouted. The shofar was sounded, the walls fell down, and they took the land of Jericho. They took the city of Jericho. Now, when they took the city of Jericho, they were not allowed to take any of the silver or gold. All of the silver and gold was dedicated to the Lord and given into his temple, into his temple treasury. And then not only was all of that all those treasures put under the ban so they would only be for God. God also said, no one is to rebuild this city. And I think the reason why God set that apart, and you could look at it as the first fruits, but I think the, the primary aspect of it was that God said, just as you receive the manna in the wilderness and you have to bring the omer to, to wave before me to remember that I gave you the manna to sustain you. When you look at Jericho, you'll remember that it's I who gave you your land. It's I who gave you the victory. Not by your own strength or your own might did you do this, but that's going to be a remembrance before you. Just as the Omer waving is a remembrance of the manna and my provision, Jericho will be a remem remembrance of my provision and my power. It's a pretty cool picture to think of even that kind of remembrance being set up for God's glory and His great power.
when you look at what happened at Sinai and when you look at what happened at Jericho, you have two pieces that you're putting together. You have God's revelation coming down on Sinai to bring a people unto himself and a shofar that brings it to an end. Not, not, I mean, that kind of concludes phase one. And then you have phase two of God bringing his children into the land as he promised. And it begins with the shofar blast that picks right up where the other shofar blast went off to complete the people and the land with God at the center. God doing both being the one who delivered a people from slavery to bring to himself and gave the people an inheritance of land to live on. In those two events, he's doing what Jubilee recounts every 50 years. Okay? A remembrance to the children of Israel that God's the one who made them as a people, brought them to himself, redeemed them, and gave them the land and his presence in their midst. Next week, we're going to talk more about uh, Shavuot and Jubilee and the return of Yeshua and how those play together. It's really a fascinating and beautiful picture of God bringing about his faithfulness or bringing about his promises in faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And within it all, there's a message that God has for his people. And the, his message for his people is that you matter, that you are important. You're not just a cog in the wheel. You are not still slaves to Pharaoh. Instead, God has elevated you from a place of slavery to a place of priesthood within his kingdom. And it's important for his redeemed people to understand that so that they can walk in liberty as opposed to walking in oppression. Because the rulers of this world and the spiritual forces that are opposed to God, they hate you. They don't think you matter. They see you as a slave, and they want to afflict you and use you according to their purposes. That's the exact opposite of what God wants to do. God wants to set you free from affliction. He wants to set you free from the rulers and principalities that seek to lord over you and to say you're nothing. No, you are something. And so what does he do when he's... He's had the children of Israel here at the mountain, and he's saying, I'm about to take you on from here. Your time of exile from the land is coming to an end. I want to move you forward from here, but you need to know that I am the center of your life and the one who brings you forward, brings the fullness of your restoration and redemption. So you're going to camp around the tabernacle. You're going to travel with the tabernacle at your center. But even before we do that, we're going to take a census of all the people. And when he takes up the census, as we read earlier in Numbers 1, if we look in Numbers 1, 2 through 3, he tells Moses, take a census of all the congregation. But the way that it's written is not do accounting. It's lift up the heads of all the congregation of the people Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. Lift up their heads. As opposed to lift off their heads. Very important distinction. 
He says, lift up the heads of the children of Israel. Why? Well, the children of Israel have been enslaved. They've been beaten down for many years. For 11 months, they've been camped around the wilderness with God's presence, which is wonderful. But do you know that they're probably still learning what a good father he is? Do you think there's still some wounds that need to be touched? Some aspects of identity that haven't been fully grasped or restored? And God says, Moses, lift up their heads. They may be downcast. They may have this false idea of who they are in my sight, of who I've redeemed them to be, but lift up their heads and let them know that they count. Let them know that they count, and I have a purpose and a plan for each of them, and I invite them to come and camp around my tabernacle, to come near to me in my presence. And that knowing that identity is key for what they're then going to go forward and walk into. Because when you know that you have a God who is for you, then who can be against you? Even as you stand before Jericho and you see those walls, God says, see, I have given Jericho into your hands. That's right. God's given whatever walls and mountain you face into your hands because he is the God over all things. The question is, are we going to put our faith and trust in him? And are we going to prepare ourselves to be able to then walk forward in what he's calling us to? Because he doesn't let you sit in exile forever because he has a plan and a purpose for you. So he's going to call you forward. But what are you doing in the meantime when you're in the wilderness? Is your head down? Because I know the wilderness is hard and we can get worn out and we become weary and we can say, forget it. What's it all for? But that's not what he says. He says, lift up your head. Lift up your head. Because God is preparing for a takeover. God's preparing for a takeover of this world. Right now, we see the forces of darkness rampaging through our culture and through our society, trying to redefine, you name it. And you can look at the coming onslaught and you can say, oh man, there's nothing that can stop that. But there is something that can stop that. It's a people who rightfully take their place as representatives of God and as his ambassadors and stand for righteousness and truth and who say, you know what, I really believe it when Yeshua says that he's going to reign and when God says that his kingdom will know no end. Yeshua is coming back and the day is getting closer. It is hastening to its fulfillment because it's God's desire to bring forth his kingdom in fullness on this earth. So what we're called to do is we're called to be a bride making herself ready for her coming king. In Psalm 24, verses 9 through 10, the scriptures say, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And he's going to be coming on the clouds of glory, to rule and to reign, and to tear down every wall that has kept his people captive, to bring people out of slavery and into a land where God's presence is the center of their lives.
So let's prepare ourselves for his coming. And next week we'll talk more about the coming of Yeshua as well. Amen. And does anybody have anything that you wanted to share? Can we get the microphone? Wow, every a lot of people. Okay, we need uh, the microphone. So in the beginning you were mentioning about a people in the land. And immediately, and, and this is something... Well, anyways, so it immediately in my mind came a family and a home, right? So I teach my kids, you know, what is your purpose? You know, what? why, why did God create you? And it's to be his family. Um, and in another aspect of my life, I, I always tell people, like, uh, when I'm talking about, like, when it's time for me to die, I say, when it's time for me to go home. Like, that's a very common thing for me to say, right? And so when you're talking about a people in the land, it, what came to my mind was immediately a family and a home. Yeah. Um, the Shemitah and the Yovel point to Shavuot symbols of full restoration, point to the first fruit of the Spirit of God falling on all flesh, restoring what was lost at the Tower of Babel, unity to replace conflict. Mm -hmm. And I th um, what came to me was unity of the body is more important than arguments of doctrine. Like a family that bickers, it still should stand together against the outside world. And a family should not air out their dirty laundry to the rest of the world. Internal arguments of the body shouldn't be aired out for the world to see. Family business should remain family business. To the world's eyes, we should stand united in the anointed one, in God, in love. And an example of that I see is the Jews. They will very impassionately like, argue with each other. But when they face the world, what they show is we are Jews, mm -hmm. right? The rest of the world doesn't even, I mean, un unless you delve into their culture, you don't even know what the difference is. They're all Jews. Only until you immerse yourself into their world do you understand, oh, oh, there's reform, there's orthodox, ultra-orthodox. But unless you, like, get into their world, like, dive delve deep in, on the outside, they're just all Jews, right? Unfortunately, Christianity doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the unity over, yeah, over over doctrine, amen. And then the family, I love that, that picture because that is, it's the family of God, yeah. Thank you for bringing, uh, tying in the the concept of the Jubilee year with Shavuot. Um, one thing that came to mind was you have the picture of counting the 50 days, the seven weeks and the 50th, and that's Shavuot. And it means freedom. You know, it's the year of freedom. And then I, I thought of the scripture, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Uh -huh. So that goes together because when the Holy Spirit came yeah. on Shavuot, it gave freedom. And that's Amen. what it does when we receive the Holy Spirit. We have the power, the internal power to walk in the freedom and liberty of God. And so I just see that theme better. Amen. Like freedom. Shavuot's about freedom. Yes. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to steal that for next week. <laughs> I had a picture when you were talking in my mind about the children of God going around Jericho and the people inside Jericho looking down and saying, oh, these foolish people, what are they doing? And, and perhaps even jeering or, or making fun of them. Mm. And... Uh, 
I'm sure there are people who, when we are moved by the Spirit to pray for someone or to lay hands on someone, and you are out in the world doing that, that they look at that person is like, my gosh, what's that person doing? Or maybe even jeering them. And I was reminded years ago when I first understood what it meant to have a living spirit inside of you and to be obedient to that spirit no matter what. And uh, I had not always been that way because I was afraid of looking foolish or what if I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I was in the line at a grocery store. I believe it was a Kroger years ago. And I'm in this line and there are people behind me. And the Lord said to me, clear as a bell in my mind, said, tell this girl who was doing, you know, the, the pushing the stuff through. And, and she was not a happy camper. And uh, he said, tell her that God loves her. Mm. And I'm like three people back. And I'm just going, well, what about this? And what about that? And when I got up to her, I looked at her because I knew what it was not to obey God. And I looked at her and I said, not in a whisper, but not in a loud voice. I said, God loves you. Remember that God loves you. And she started crying. There are these, all these people around because she said, I'm a backslider, I'm a PK, and I'm a backslider. And she said, thank you for that. And so when other people look at us going around Jericho, okay, I would remind us that obedience is not foolishness. Yes, amen, and it breaks the yoke, doesn't it? Amen. And then one more I just, I couldn't help but when we were, I love the story of Jericho. It's one of my favorites. It reminds me of God's, one of those moments where it's not possible. Like you said, if you study, and I studied this from years ago, Jericho's walls were thick and high, and they even had a watchtower, like a second layer behind that. And I mean, there's no way that anybody standing out there is going to go, yeah, sure, we got this. It would have been, this is impossible. They had to trust God. They had to do what seemed foolish. Mm-hmm. In, in, their, in the eyes of men, and even in people of Jericho going, what are these people doing? You know, they can't hurt us. And, and, our, and I love archaeology because uh, it shows that the walls, that we know that God had his hand in it, because the walls didn't fall inward through battering rams or through that. They fell straight down. And walls don't typically fall straight down if you're trying to get in or out. You know, they, right. they go one way or the other. And then they also an amazing discovery of, of what they believe, they can't prove it for sure, but a house on the north side that, that fits the description of Rahab's house was not destroyed. Uh, and, and, you know, and not to mention the grain that they found uh, you know, later on in vats that was preserved that, you know, how could that have been unless they recent, you know, something that happened quickly. So there's just a lot of amazing things that God shows his faithfulness to us and our obedience and, and the rocks will cry out and they will teach us no matter what we want to believe in our own human minds. Yeah. So it's a great reminder of God's faithfulness. Amen. Amen. All right, let, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your power, your might, and your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you no matter what wall is before us, no matter how the exile or the wilderness feels. We thank you, Lord, that you are a great redeemer 
And Lord, that you love us and that you say that we count and you lift up our countenance because you shine yours upon us. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us, help us as we prepare for the coming of Yeshua. Help us as we prepare to go forward into whatever it is that you lead us to, each individually and collectively. We thank you for your goodness, and we give you praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.